So this morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew 24, verses 1 to 14. If it's the Bible under your seat, it can be found on page 829. Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 to 14. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. My name is Mike. I'm the teaching pastor here at Trinity. Glad to be worshiping with you this morning. So today we're continuing in Matthew's biography of of Jesus, what we know as the the Gospel of Matthew. And we come to this passage here uh, in Matthew 24. So Matthew 24 is 51 verses long. It's a big one. And we've divided the passage into, into two sermons, right? So we're going to do the short part today, and then we're going to do a, a much longer part next week. But it's a little bit artificial, because Matthew 24, it's 51 verses of, of basically just a continuous logical unit. So splitting it anywhere is a little bit artificial. But because we're, we're going to be doing that, it, 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 I think it'd be helpful just to say a few things about the passage before we jump in, just so we can kind of hold on to these um, as we do this week and next. So... Matthew 24 is a pretty disputed passage, so there's lots of faithful, biblically-minded scholars who disagree with each other about Matthew 24, and all of them are way more educated and intelligent than I am, right? So what I'm going to do today is going to bring you the interpretation that I find the most convincing, but it, you know, if, if at the end of it you're, you're left with questions, I just encourage you to ask them. Right? I think sometimes as we ask questions of each other and about the scriptures, we actually get closer and closer and closer to the meaning. We think of things that the other person didn't think of. And so I just encourage you to ask whatever questions occur to you along the way. Of myself, the other elders, I know Alice Hobdy has given this chapter a lot of thought. I think there's lots of folks here uh, that I'm not even aware of that, that have as well. So the second thing I want to say, too, is, is if you're here and you're exploring Christianity or, or you're relatively new to the faith, or maybe you're not new to the faith, but you're just sort of new to the scriptures in a way. I think there's many Christians who are sort of culturally Christian and just recently uh, discovering the, the, the Christian Hebrew scriptures. I want to say something to you as well. Um, 
this passage is going to get us into the weeds. <laughs> uh, this week a little bit, but, but next week for sure. We will be in the weeds. And so I just encourage you not to check out. Don't undersell yourself. You know, I, I think that as we're, as we're learning the, uh, you know, the truths of the faith, as we're learning the Christian scriptures, it's a little bit like learning a language. On one level, there's kind of the classroom side, right? There's the, the 101 course where you're learning your vocab and you're learning the grammar and you got to get the alphabet right. And that's an essential piece of it. And it's also the, the beginner piece. But just as useful is like full-on cultural immersion, right? Go to a country that speaks the language and get dumped there through a helicopter payload and just have to find your way, right? That is also a useful way to, to, to find your way. Because then what ends up happening, you start hearing your, your vocab words in conversation. You start seeing how the grammar actually works when people are speaking it. And then you have signs where you're actually seeing the alphabet. So... This week won't be too tough, but next week it might be a little bit like that helicopter payload into a, a, a foreign language culture. I just encourage you to, to stick it out because I think it's in those moments as well that we actually learn qu- quite a bit about the faith. Um, I, just, I, rem- I remember being a part of this church plant in, in college called Emmaus Bible Church and being with guys. I was just so totally outclassed in terms of theology and um, just found every opportunity I could to get coffee. Um, and just let them talk at me, right? And it was enormously helpful. So I think Christian theology is a little bit like that. So I just wanted to set the scene and just, you know, um, God instructs us to love, love him with our mind. And so I think learning is, is a way we do that. So as we get into the weeds, let's, let's stick it out. Let's, because there, there's, there's, there's deep things for us to, to find here. All right, so we've just come out of this long section where Jesus sort of goes head-to-head with the Pharisees and the scribes and the rest of the, the Jewish religious establishment. And so basically what, the, what we've been seeing over the past couple chapters is the religious leaders have been challenging Jesus' claims to authority. They, you know, Jesus does this triumphal entry. He, he's throwing tables in the temple. It's this big thing, and all of it is sort of the claim that he is, in fact, the king. But the, the leaders of, of the Jews will not acknowledge that he is. They're convinced that he must not be their king. So what we saw is we saw, you know, them questioning him repeatedly about his authority. We saw him delivering these parables, announcing the, the judgment of, of Israel, the rejection of Israel. We, we saw him go on this huge tirade over the past two weeks against the Pharisees. And at least In at least two places in the discussion, really I think there are more, Jesus makes these really overt announcements of judgment, like judgment against the people who are supposed to be God's people. He came looking for Israel, but instead he gets rejected in the very places where he should have found followers. He gets rejected in the very places where he should have found followers. The startling word for us. And so Jesus makes this, a number of statements. He tells a few parables, <laughs> withers a fig tree, all to communicate that God's people are being rejected. The people who have rejected Messiah will be rejected by God. And that in Israel's place, a new Israel is going to be formed, but it's not going to be around a common ethnicity. It's going to be around a common Lord. 
So in Matthew 24, what we see is this conversation between, you know, between the disciples and, and Jesus where the disciples are trying to figure all this out. They've heard these statements about judgment. They, they're taking Jesus real seriously. They've seen the withering of the fig tree, and they're trying to piece it all together. And so they start asking questions about the judgment of God. When is God going to judge Israel? How is he going to do it? Will that mean the end of the world? All these questions are on the table in Matthew 24. But before we get into a lot of that content, a lot of that will be next week, what we're going to see today is Jesus is going to take a minute and he's going to tell his disciples what they should expect before any judgment of God actually takes place. Jesus is going to tell them what the judgment of God will look like. Before, well, before he tells them what the judgment of God will look like, he's going to tell them what it won't look like. And so that's kind of what we have in today's passage. Today we've got four things to, to expect, all of which don't mean the end of the world. So the first thing I want to point out from the passage is pretty important because it kind of gives us the lay of the land for, for all of chapter 24. So this is going to be relevant not just for this week, but for next week as well. And it's not in any one particular verse. It, it's kind of just the whole thing, right? So what I want to do for this first point is just to kind of set the scene for us. And, and then explain why the disciples' question is so important. So this whole confrontation with the Pharisees, the scribes, it sort of culminated last week when, when Jesus says these words. Feel free to open a, a Bible again, page 829 under, in, the, in the Pew Bible. I'm actually going to dip back into chapter 23 just for a second. Jesus culminates this whole speech that he's been doing, and he says these words. He says, your house is left to you desolate. So he's been announcing this kind of like rejection of the Pharisees, and finally it culminates, and he says, your house is left to you desolate. What does that mean? So we've talked about this before, but it's worth mentioning again just how important the temple was in Israel. We actually have a slide. On the, so before I go on, this is a model this, like, this was not made on a computer. This is a model made by a farmer. Like, his hobby <laughs> for 30 years has been making this model. And it's epic. Look at it. Man, it's real. He made that with his hands. So I just want to point that out. I thought it was pretty cool when I found it online. So anyway, so it's, a, you know, I just didn't think that farmers had any time, right? I mean, all the farmers I know have no time. So anyways, um... 30-year effort, still not finished. A year ago, we did an Advent series on the presence of God, and we talked a lot about how, how meaningful it is to, to, to know that God dwells with us, right? Now, for Israel, what, what, you know, the, the place where God dwelt was in his temple, and that didn't mean that, that God wasn't everywhere. He was. God can't be contained in a temple, but, but in a very special way. God was there in the temple in a way where he you know, unlike where he was anywhere else, right? There was sort of a special presence of God there in the temple, and that was so meaningful to Israel. It meant something to them, right? It meant that God was for them, that he was with them, that they were going to, that he, was, he, that he would preserve them, that they were in good standing with him, and it all centered around this, this one temple, which is why, and some of you may remember this from the Advent series, why it was so disturbing to hear a preacher arise. Like 600 years before Jesus was born, a preacher arose named Ezekiel, and he, he had this vision 
where he sees the presence of God leaving the temple. He sees the presence of God leaving the temple, and it camps out by the Mount of Olives. And it was such a a significant and startling and disturbing thing for Israel to hear because it meant that God had left them. And then it wasn't too long after that before they went into exile and the temple was destroyed. And so when, when Jesus says this line about your house is left to you desolate— you have to imagine that in the minds of the disciples, they just, their, their minds are going back to Ezekiel. Their minds are going back to, oh man, like there was someone else who said that and the temple got destroyed and we went into exile, right? So like these words would have hit them so hard. This would have been a devastating thing. And it's not just a standalone statement, right? For, for the past like three chapters, we've been watching Jesus making these these claims about a coming judgment of God, a rejection of Israel because Israel has rejected their Messiah. And so they hear this phrase, your house is left to you desolate. The resident of the house of God is vacating. And so here we are at the beginning of chapter 24, and and it's significant, especially when you know the Ezekiel passage, that Jesus here leaves the temple and he sits on the Mount of Olives. I'm just going to point that out, that he, he acts out the presence of God leaving the temple, which is just a wild thing, and yet again, just something that Jesus tends to do. But So the disciples approach him, and they, they, they ask him this. This is uh, verse 2, or, or rather, verse 1. They, they, they point out the temple, right? It doesn't say what exactly they say, but we can probably make a guess. It's probably something along the lines of, hey, so... Could you specify what you meant by the whole your house is left to you desolate thing? Because that was terrifying, right? And so they point out the temple to Jesus, and his response is, Oh, you see all these. Do you not truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down? In other words, Jesus is confirming, like, yeah, guys, I'm saying it's going to happen again. That the judgment of God upon us. And of course, we know that in AD 70, that's precisely what happened. The Romans came in, sieged Jerusalem, and destroyed the temple. All that was left was one wall, not even of the temple, but of the temple precinct. The temple will be destroyed. I think it's hard for us to imagine just how horrifying and terrifying that would have been for the disciples to have grown up with stories of the exile all their lives, and now to hear this phrase. And so, they ask Jesus two questions, okay? And this is the part where we're going to get in the weeds just a little bit. They ask Jesus two questions. They ask, when will these things be, and what will be the sign? In other words, how are we going to know that they're close, right? How are we going to know that they're close? So here's what I want us to notice. Here's the first thing I want us to notice, because it's going to make a lot more sense of what Jesus says this week and next. So I want us to notice that when the disciples think about the destruction of the temple, they, they think of it as the final judgment, right? So imagine how they're hearing it. What, they, what they've been hearing over these past few discourses that we've read is they, what they've heard Jesus say is that Israel has rejected its Messiah, so they are going to be rejected by God. The true people of God, the true Israel, is being called up around Jesus, and the temple, the place of our worship, is getting destroyed, so the disciples kind of naturally just think, okay, it's the end of the world, 
right? That, like, that's where they go with that. It's like, okay, so there's a separation of the true followers and the not true followers, and there's a destruction of the temple. It's the end of the world. So Jesus, what will be the sign? How are we going to know that the end of the world, your coming and the close of the age, how are we going to know that that's close? Okay? But here's what, it's, it's so important to notice this. They think they're talking about one event. Okay? So the disciples are asking, how are we going to know this is close? And, how, you know, when will this be? How will we know it's, it's upon us? And they're talking about the destruction of the temple and the end of the world. But Jesus hears that question, and he does this thing, just typical Jesus, where he, he doesn't answer the question. He answers the question you should have asked. So, like, he, for Jesus, these, this isn't one event. It's two events. Okay? So what they just said, when will these things be, the destruction of the temple, Jesus knows that they're talking about final judgment and the, the temple destruction. And so he has to answer both. Does this make sense? So Jesus has to answer both questions. He's going to tackle, when will the temple be destroyed, and what are the signs that that's going to happen soon? And then when will the final judgment take place, and what are the signs that that's going to happen soon? Okay? So that's the lay of the land for all of Matthew 24. And that's why it's 51 verses long, right? Because Jesus is going to answer the question that the disciples should have asked. Does this make sense? Is this helpful? Should I sit on this for a couple minutes, or is this fine? All right. Feel free to respond. I mean, I think it's helpful just to, you know, if, it, if it's not making sense, just shake your head, or and I can camp out on a, on a topic longer. So next week we'll be back in the weeds, but that's it for this week. I think the rest will be pretty straightforward. It's a really key point, and that's kind of the lay of the land. So basically, the end of Israel, in other words, what we're learning here is that the end of Israel is not the end of the world. It doesn't mean the end of the world. So secondly, the darkness of the world is not the end of the world. So verses 4 through 8, Jesus is now on the Mount of Olives. Again, you know, it's a startling thing that he's just did. He's left the temple, gone to the Mount of Olives, which is exactly what the presence of God does in that passage out of Ezekiel. And so the disciples approach and they ask a question. Verse 4, Jesus says, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And, and they'll lead many astray. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So Jesus starts out, he's starting to answer the disciples' question, and he starts out by saying that in the coming years, there's going to be some terrible things that take place, terrible and confusing things. There will be folks who will come in Jesus' name, right, claiming to be the Christ. Probably what Jesus, he's, not, he's probably not saying that they're coming saying, I'm actually Jesus, but that they're, they're claiming to have his kind of authority, to have some special ability to communicate what Jesus wants. They're coming in his name by his authority, or at least that's what they're claiming. They're claiming to represent Jesus, but they absolutely don't. And they will lead many away from the true faith. And he also says that many of the same things that sort of always take place in human history, like wars, natural disasters, he says that the disciples should expect all of that to just continue, that the pace of horrifying things in our world is not going to slow down. 
So I don't know if, if, if you guys have noticed this. I, I've seen a couple articles online pointing it out as well, but we in the English-speaking world seem to just be obsessed with apocalyptic stuff lately. Have you noticed this? So, like, we just, we're way into post-apocalyptic, like, end-of-the-world sort of movies. So I, uh, I went online, so, like, Soylent Green, Mad Max, and, you know, these others. Um, so just to illustrate between... Just to show that this is, like, really ramped up, I found this hilarious. So between 1950 and 1959, the number of apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic films that came out were were a little under 15. A little under 15 in, in that decade. Okay. Between 2010 and 2019, by one count, there were 96 apocalyptic films made, and that's only counting like somewhat major releases. That doesn't count in independent film releases of apocalyptic movies. 96 apocalyptic movies. Also, that doesn't count disaster movies, right? That's just zombies and bombs, basically. <laughs> like, that's all that is. Was that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, yeah, so it's just this ridiculous number of apocalyptic movies. And so there's probably, you know, actually, you know, I think there's a lot of really interesting reasons why this is. And there, there are many, and there's some articles about it, and they're fascinating. Um, not really important for what I'm trying to point out, but it's, it, is, it, is, it is really interesting, sort of just like cultural angst about the, the end of the world. But what I'm trying to point out is just that culturally, we seem to, to feel like we're on the edge. We seem to feel like everything around us is deeply fragile, and so I don't know if, if these movies sell because we feel like we're preparing, right? I, I don't know what it is. But we feel the fragility of our society, the fragility of our cultural moment, the fragility of our privilege, the fragility of our lives, and something in us like wants to prepare or wants to like run scenarios in our head until we're like, all right, I got it. I'm good. Like, I'm totally going to survive. But what Jesus says is that in the years leading up to when God sums up human history, disasters are going to strike. There's going to be tragedy and chaos, wars and rumors of wars, and it will all not mean the end. And none of it will be the end. He, in fact, tells the Christians, do not be alarmed. Don't be alarmists. That's not to say don't be a survivalist or whatever. I'm not like, if you are a survivalist, teach me your ways. You probably know a lot that I don't, but, you know, but let's just, you know, notice what Jesus is saying here, that like these things that we take to mean the end are just the beginning of the birth pains. So, you know, I don't want to assume that everybody here knows what the process of pregnancy is like. I don't know what it's like firsthand. But I've witnessed the process play itself out to completion three times. And there's this thing called Braxton Hicks contractions. So the, the Braxton Hicks contraction does not mean that a woman is in labor. In fact, it can strike at like 20 weeks. So not, you're at the halfway point. It can strike that early. And some of them, especially if, it's, if, if you've had a few babies, they can feel like active labor pains, right? They, they feel like... The real thing is starting. Let's get the duffel bag. We're going to the hospital. But Jesus, I think that's the image that he's saying. So when he says the beginning of the birth pains, I don't think that we should be thinking, oh, this is the like sort of the start of our end times chart. And now we start, you know, I don't think it's that. I think it's, he's saying that like, man, we're, we're not, this doesn't mean anything. Because that's the thing about Braxton Hicks contraction. You can have it at 20 weeks. It doesn't mean you're anywhere close. 
You'd also have it at 39 weeks, in which case you're probably pretty close. But the Braxton-Hicks contraction is not the thing telling you you're close, right? It's the size of your belly and the kicking, right, that tells you that you're close. So don't derive any meaning from these things except, you know, so Jesus is talking about these wars and rumors of wars. I don't think we're supposed to derive any meaning from these things except that they're tragic and awful and that they're a great cause for grief. And that we should, we should just grieve and not try to, to say, oh, man, we're, we're close to the end. And it's so funny. Like, growing up, I used to hear about disasters and wars and, and hear about bloodshed throughout the globe. And I'd, I, had, I would vaguely remember that Jesus at some point had said something about wars and, and disasters and that he had said those things in the context of the end. And I would, I would just sort of instinctually be like, oh, man, a natural disaster. The end is close, you know? And so funny now, realizing that, like, that's actually the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. Like, he's saying the, ac- the absolute opposite, that these things do not mean the end is close. Jesus will go on to say that when the end comes, it will be unmistakable. The role of Christians is not to build these end times charts and figure out how close we are to the end. Our role in the darkness is to point to the light. Our role in the darkness is to be people who grieve hard over evil. Our role in the darkness is to have the ability to interpret the pain as coming from sin and death and to be those who announce the only reason for hope in our world, which is the resurrection of the Lamb of God who suffered with us. From the beginning, Jesus didn't think life would get any easier because he had been born and died and rose. He didn't think that life was going to to get easier after he'd accomplished that. What he's telling us is that because of what he did, now in the midst of the darkness, there's a light shining, and it will not be extinguished. So the darkness of the world is not the end of the world. Third, the pain of God's people is not the end of the world. Verses 9 to 12. This is Jesus talking. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you'll be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. And then let's throw in verse 13. Then the one who endures to the end will be saved. So Jesus now, he, he transitions to, talk, to talking about the hardships that his own people are going to endure precisely because they're his people. And he's probably referring to the, the years leading up to the destruction of the temple, but it's just as relevant for us as well. So it, it's, it's long been pointed out that sort of that American evangelicals have what, what many are calling like a persecution complex. Have you guys heard about this? The, like kind of the persecution complex of American evangelicals. In other words... It's been pointed out both by Christians and non-Christians that for many years what we've, what we've seen among American evangelicals is, is this, they kind of have a storyline where, like a, a victim story that, that we kind of play. And it's interesting. I think it's kind of a boy who cried wolf situation because now that things are a little bit more precarious for us, like we're, we're, we have very little of an audience because we've been calling persecution here in the United States for so long. And that's not to say that there isn't some social persecution of different kinds here in the States. 
but it's far from what most folks would, would recognize as persecution. And so from this outsider perspective, it's been sort of tiring and it's kind of an irritating trait within evangelicalism. It's inspired a lot of resentment, contributed to this image that people have of American Christians. And I, I wish it was entirely inaccurate. But I think the real problem that we're, we're seeing now culturally is that folks will observe American Christianity, and, and again, there's been this kind of boy who cries wolf thing going on, and they'll notice how some of us have a persecution complex, and then they go on to say, Christians are just a privileged, out-of-touch religious group desperate to hold on to their majority status, and when they say Christians, they mean all of our brothers and sisters. All because really they're just reacting to this thing that's happened in like the past 50 years, right? Just in the United States. And they, they say that they're talking about all Christians. But the truth is that Christianity is the single most persecuted religious group in the world. I'm not taking that from Christianity today. I'm not taking that from, from a Christian source. That's the BBC and the Atlantic. Christianity is bar none the most persecuted religion in the world. Christians are persecuted wildly. In some places of the world right now, it is bordering on genocide. And it's a shame that we have had this, this sort of boy who cried wolf situation here in the States because now I think we are entering into territory where religious liberties for, for actually all three of the Abrahamic faiths are being threatened. Persecution is real. Our brothers and sisters are being killed. Others are just simply demeaned. What I encounter the most personally is just sort of this, this low-level assumption that if you're a Christian, if you've arrived at the decision to be a Christian, you must have arrived there through either stupidity or just unforgivable intellectual laziness. So persecution is real, and Jesus says that at times it will be very intense And yet it does not mean that the end is imminent. From the get-go, Jesus has told us that the weeds and and the wheat will grow up together. That the church will pursue its mission in the middle of opposition. And so what's important for us to notice is that for Jesus, physical danger isn't the only or even the most important threat to the church. That's what I want to point out about this little passage here, is that physical danger is not the worst thing that Jesus can imagine for his people. The greatest danger for the church is not that we would be harmed, but that we would be discouraged. The greatest danger to us is not that we would be harmed, but that we would be deceived. The greatest danger to us is not that we would be harmed, but that we would allow the pain we experience and the pain of our brothers and sisters to become an excuse not to love. And that, for Jesus, is so much more threatening to his people than pain, than like physical pain. I think the reason why is simply because for us, the end is not the end. But we have all been included to participate in the mission of God in the world. And that mission, over the years, because God is gracious and because he is baffling the wisdom of the world, that mission somehow succeeds wildly where God's people are most harmed. 
There was a church father that said that the church grows out the blood of the martyrs. It sounds really morbid, but it's been true since the Roman Empire. The church stagnates and withers where we are most comfortable. The mission of the church is not impeded by our harm. It's impeded by our discouragement. By our apathy. By using the, the demeaning way that sometimes we're talked about to give us an excuse to be demeaning to somebody else. And in that moment, we sacrifice our witness and abandon the way of Jesus. In the end, only the one who endures is saved. So my encouragement to us is just to keep on the way of Jesus. Let there be no excuse. In order to do that, we need each other. Desperately. We can't do it alone. So we're three points in, and things look pretty grim. <laughs> so from our perspective, it's like, especially if, if you're coming from the kind of position that I had for many years, you might be thinking right now, that's like, man, I used to look at wars and disasters and persecution and think, thank goodness the end is close, <laughs> right? And now I realize I can't say that anymore. So it's like, you know, there's, a, there's one... There's one pastor who puts it this way. That he just says, like, we may very well be in the infancy of the church. It's like, good grief. <laughs> right? Like, you know, I have to endure all, you know, do we, are we really going to have to endure all these wars and disasters and persecution and pain? Is there any, is it that bleak? Is it just ongoing struggle until a, a very sudden but unmistakable return of Christ? I think there is hope for the journey, and, and, and it's a hope that, that isn't just that, that we ourselves will be restored in the resurrection. That is the fundamental hope. Without that, I'm not really sure how, how you know, maybe someone has a really creative way of doing it. I'm not really sure how to be a Christian without holding on just with a vice grip onto the hope of the resurrection, but there is an additional hope that Jesus gives us, an additional um, thing that he gives us, and I think what it does is it, it tells us where we are in the story of our world, and it is not, well, anyways, I'll say the point. So the last thing is that, that we are on the side of the victor, that God's kingdom will prevail until the end of the world. So verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, that in the same way that you can be sure that the darkness will continue and that persecution will continue, you can also be assured that the gospel of the kingdom will prevail in our world. And so what I want to point out to us as I run out of time is that Jesus' words here give Christians a reason for historical optimism. Historical optimism. We can be historically optimistic, not because things are going to get better and better and better and more comfortable and it's going to look more and more like the American dream until all of us are sort of like the people in Pixar's WALL-E where we're just, you know, like just on these weird pods with a TV in front. You know, it's not that things are going to get better and better and more comfortable until finally Jesus comes back, but rather that no matter how bad things are, God is going to use weak, unqualified people to announce the gospel to the world. And that's why we can be historically optimistic. The gospel of the kingdom will not be overcome. 
But more and more across this globe, wherever there are people, there will be God's people. And that's the story that we participate in. So basically where we're at right now, we're at this moment in the story of redemption where God is drawing in the nations. God is drawing in a new people. And that work started with, with the, the judgment that, that we're going to talk about next week. And it goes right up until today. It's this moment in, in the drama of what God is doing in the world where the nations are being brought in, where the Lord is bringing together a massive, multi-ethnic people from all over the globe and all over time for the glory of his name and the life of the world. And we are all a result of this in-gathering. The gospel is being preached to the far reaches of our globe. And no matter the opposition, no matter the alarm, that work will progress. And it is something more valuable than our safety. Our participation will not be wasted. God is including us in the final chapter of human history. We have been drawn in to draw others in. It occurs to me to throw this passage in. So at the end of your your Bibles, near the end of your Bibles, there's this passage in the book of Revelation. And again, I'm not going to get into... You know, describing all the imagery in Revelation. It, it's a, this, Revelation, at the end of the day, is a book describing basically the age that we're in. It's all the ages of the church from the ascension of Christ on. It's describing sort of God's perspective versus the perspective from the world. And there's this passage that, that there's some imagery that we're not going to be able to, to understand up front, but it's kind of wants to receive what we can. But it, it shows us this growing multitude of people from every nation that have been drawn in to the gospel. So the, the, the prophet that wrote Revelation, he writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, Jesus, clothed in white robes, a symbol of purity, with palm branches in their hands. And they were calling out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. These are all images from... Uh, previous in the book, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. History will culminate in that moment. And we take part. God is inviting us to take part. And it is something so valuable that it is worth risking our reputation and our safety. It's out of that hope, it's out of that historical optimism that's only possible because of the gospel, it's out of that hope that we endure. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you and we praise you, God. Because all glory and power and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and might are yours. You are the lamb who was slain, the lion of Judah who triumphed over death. And we have nothing apart from you. So Lord, I pray that you would give us a hope 
powerful enough to help us endure. Not because we're so courageous, not because we're strong enough, but because you are. And that in our weakness, you would help us to band together, to knit our hearts together. And that Trinity Community Church would be a people who announce and demonstrate the gospel of the kingdom persistently until the end arrives or our end arrives. Lord, I only ask that, that should you return, that you would find us acting faithfully. Amen.